On this season of Where the Health Are We, we have talked about a number of challenges African countries are facing when it comes to getting people vaccinated against COVID-19. We've talked about vaccine inequity. And we haven't been able to get the vaccine and uh, get the vaccine to them, and we haven't been able to get them vaccinated. We've talked about vaccine hesitancy and its impact to some level. What we have in Africa is not really hesitancy. What we found in countries that people are actually willing to take the vaccine. And we've also talked about supply chain challenges and how those are impacting the last mile delivery of the vaccines. One of the challenges that COVID has brought in terms of the rollout of vaccine is how do we move vaccines around quickly? But a lot of the problems African countries are facing with regards to the COVID-19 vaccinations boil down to one thing. And that is Africa's inability to manufacture vaccines. And we can see this in the fact that Africa only makes 1% of the vaccines used on the continent. And so Africa needs to start making vaccines. But the process of boosting vaccine manufacturing on the continent hasn't been without its challenges. For one thing, vaccine development is expensive. And many African countries do not have the financial wherewithal to cope with the expenses of developing vaccine manufacturing facilities. Another problem is demand uncertainties. Investors are reluctant to put money into these vaccine manufacturing initiatives because they're not sure where the market will be and where they will be able to make their profits. In addition to that, there has been limited technology transfer and limited know-how in the vaccine manufacturing space. And on a more macro level, there has just simply been a lack of vision and political will. Governments have become so accustomed to receiving help from international organizations like the WHO and UNICEF, and also from philanthropic organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I think this has led to some level of complacency where African governments no longer see the need to develop their own manufacturing capacity. But to mention these challenges is not to discount the strides that Africa has made when it comes to vaccine manufacturing. We've seen this in the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Plan for Africa, which was adopted in 2007. This was a plan basically designed by the African Union to catalyze local pharmaceutical production. We've also seen a similar stride in the establishment of the African Medicines Agency, which is an agency that would provide the regulatory framework for future pharmaceutical production. We've also seen things like the establishment of the Partnership for Africa Vaccine Manufacturing and also technology transfer initiatives between established pharmaceutical companies and companies in Africa. But despite these strides, Africa still has a long way to go. And anything we do to boost vaccine manufacturing capacity has to be African-initiated, African-led, and channeled towards the specific needs of African countries. So what exactly do we do? On this episode, I speak to Dr. Jeffrey Makenga, who is a medical doctor by training and also a member of the African Vaccine Manufacturing Initiative. So uh, my name is uh, Jeffrey Makenga, uh, Tanzanian, in Tanzania. 
my background in academic wise, I'm a medical doctor. I studied doctor of medicine at the University of Mohimbili in Dar es Salaam. And then I did a master's degree on vaccinology and pharmaceutical clinical development at the University of Siena in Italy. That was 2016. Welcome to Where the Health Are We, the podcast about Africa, healthcare, and everything in between. I'm your host, Chinamarami Hidroka. So I think the question on my mind and a question I think on everyone's mind in light of the COVID-19 pandemic um, is why is Africa so reliant on Western countries for vaccines and in particular the COVID-19 vaccines this this time around? Mm. So the COVID-19 uh, vaccines, actually the, the pandemic has come and uh, emphasized what was the gap that it was existing in African countries. Most of us, uh, we were reliant on uh, Western countries for vaccines for the expanded program of immunization in children. So that has been a taboo for so long. And uh, even during the pandemic, the need for a vaccine, they usually rely to where they got the vaccine for the children. It's in the Western countries. So it, the pandemic has just come up to... To, to, to highlight the gap that is existing in Africa. And actually, uh, the main problem that has caused all this is, is mostly the, the low economy that we have that has uh, been a, a problem that are bringing people, I mean, mostly the African countries or even investors, whenever someone wants to sell a vaccine, he has to think of uh, uh, the profit margins that he can get. So African market has been... Uh, can call it a, like a poor market or it's a low income generating a market and so most of the vaccines that we have uh, have been introduced more like uh, 10 to 20 years later if you compare to when it was introduced in in, in Europe and or in America so you find this this gap has been existing for so long and mostly because investors cannot get in to uh, invest in Africa and since they they feel that uh, investing in Africa won't give them a market, a profitable market, then it has been uh, such a long that uh, even, uh, maybe I can put it this way, that because mostly of the countries in are low income and are fewer middle income, selling a vaccine to an individual country in Africa would not bring a substantial profit margin. And because most of us, are, or most of the countries are low income, then the manufacturer may not be interested to invest on this aspect. This has also delayed introduction, as I said before. Actually, the WHO established the vaccine access mechanism for low-income countries, including uh, Africa, by establishing the joint vaccine procurement system through the UNICEF. So most of the countries in Africa have been procuring their vaccines from UNICEF, and uh, UNICEF used to procure a bulk product that can be tendered to most of the manufacturers, either in India or in uh, Europe or in America. But however, this pooled procurement is there, it 
it actually also benefits those uh, manufacturers in India or in uh, in Europe because you get you can get to sell a large bag at a lower price, and of course you can have uh, substantial margin of profit in that aspect. And uh, if you can get that profit, then it is easy for you to sustain your business. So lack of that uh, in Africa because you cannot you cannot gather together these African countries to to be able to. To, to make one market and this has also been a, a big problem for most of the investors if you come and invest say in Ghana you have to make sure that your government in Ghana uh, talks to people in a neighboring region like the ECOWAS and so forth if you can be able to convince them for the market uh, price then you are able to you, you are most likely to be attracted to get in and invest in, in Ghana and once you are there then you can be able to produce and sell to your neighbors at a very large uh, bulk, but at the same time it gives you an opportunity to lower the prices so that it can be affordable for all these uh, countries. So this has all long been there and uh, because of this dependence uh, from UNICEF, most of African countries didn't even develop their uh, regulatory authorities. We need regulatory authorities for uh, vaccine production uh, monitoring especially the GMP aspects, good manufacturing practice that is, has to be monitored by the regulatory authorities. So if you don't have a good regulatory authority, nobody can come and invest in your country because if you invest, he expects not to be able to export that vaccine because there was no stringent regulatory authority that made sure that these vaccines are safe. So in that aspect, you find most of the regulatory authorities in Africa, they are not fully functional in terms of uh, biological monitoring. So we don't have uh, GMP inspectors. We don't have lab labs that are enough to test lots, lots that are being released from the manufacturer before you, you sell it. So if you don't have these capabilities, then you don't expect to have somebody to come and invest while you have not yet produced that. And of course, the other thing could be the uh, political will itself. If the politicians are willing to establish a vaccine manufacturer, capacity then it is uh, something that they can they can do but the their lack of willingness then uh, this is what has brought us here and it is much more wider in the pandemic situation like we have now so i know vaccine manufacturing is very complex um and i was just wondering at a more macro level what goes into manufacturing vaccines uh, so the the manufacturing chain i think you, you mean so usually uh, the complexity is explained by that chain actually. Mostly you start with the exploratory phase. During the exploration, uh, which may take events many years, it's mostly done by universities or bi biotech companies. They ideally do uh, identifying the antigens, the pathology of the disease. They study on the natural history of the disease and they can create even animal model of such a disease because they just want to know how is one getting infected and how is one getting uh, symptoms and how is the body reacts to such infections and so forth. Once they characterize all these, then uh, they can go to a, a next phase, which is a uh, preclinical, which may take even one to two years sometimes. And here they are sure that they have identified the antigen. So now they are trying to produce it at a very low scale and they want to see if it is producible and they, what assays can they use to test such particular antigens or 
civil tests that can assure them that they are having a good uh, candidate. And also they may have an animal model that they have developed previously. They want to validate because if you want to, to be sure that it is, uh, let's say, SARS, <coughs> SARS-CoV-2 that is leading to COVID, then you have to infect, uh, let's say, an, an animal and that animal should suffer COVID. If it doesn't suffer COVID, then that is SARS-CoV-2 that you have identified is not the causative agent of COVID, you see. So once they have validated this, then they can also do some things on toxicology to see the pathological damage that has been caused by uh, such a trend. They do this in animals, actually. And uh, it may take up to two years and... Uh, it's called an early development phase because you, you are sure now this is the causative agent because you give it to a mice and the mice suffered such a disease. And if you give another candidate, we call it a vaccine, and you give it to another mice, that mice will not suffer such a, such a disease as you've seen in the previous. And also you can see other changes in toxicology if they are present or they are not present. If you can verify all these, then you are ready to go to the next phase. So the next phase would be clinical development, which is uh, mostly the clinical trials, which are uh, categorized into phases. There is phase one, two, and three. Phase one is mainly looking at uh, safety in, uh, and the initial immunogenicity. Usually it takes a low number of people. It could be one or two people uh, that you test to see if you inject it in human. This is the first in human test. So if you inject it to a human, what are the characteristics that are shown in humans? If it was safe to an animal, is it also safe to humans? So you usually take one human at a time. So it is one person, and then you, you take a series of measures and tests that you can characterize this person. And then thereafter, you go to maybe the second person, and then you can see, also you can measure the immunogenicity. If it was immunogenic and it was uh, safe, Mostly the measure is safe, that nobody should die and nobody should get devastating adverse events. And once you are done with that, then you can go to phase 2A, where you can find the dose. This is dose finding phase, where you, you find the dose and you find the schedule on appropriate time for you to, to be able to produce, I mean, to, to, to give to that person to be, able to be, to be immunized. And then uh, once you do that, then you can go to phase 2B, where, of course, in this phase, you have somehow a substantial number of people. It could be 50 or 100 number of people. Then you give them these drugs and you can find, uh, let's say, some people give them at a higher dose, some at a middle dose, and the other at a, middle, at a lower dose, just to see immunogenicity levels. And then uh, you can see if the vaccine works in them and it doesn't give them any adverse events, that, uh, I mean, safety margins, what are they, and the immunogenicity margins. Then you can go to phase 2B, which is an expanded form of the phase two. Here you, you already know the, the, the dose, but you want to do to somehow to a large number of people, could be a hundred, I mean, or 200. Or, and then you get them. And this one, because these people will be, will be uh, subjected to the environment where they can also suffer the disease probably. Then you can see uh, vaccine efficacy at that level as well. And, uh, and also this can give you a, an early proof of concept, we call it, because that is where you can say, now I have tested in these people and it has been, uh, this vaccine has been safe and it has been immunogenic and they've been efficacious. So I would like to go to phase three, 
So phase three is the large trial, which is also earmarking that you are going to later license it to the regulatory authority. So it it may take, for example, for the COVID vaccines, we have seen up to even 40,000 people have been enrolled. Uh, so it's a big trial and people getting there and you, you, you can randomize them. They will receive you a vaccine and uh, others can, can be the control group. And then you can assess the clinical incidence of the disease and also the immunogenicity and other aspects so that you want to measure as your endpoints. And once you are, you are done with the phase three and the vaccine was safe, immunogenic, and uh, can be produced at a quality level, then you can file it for licensure to your regulatory authority. So once it is licensed, then you are free to sell it in the country that it has been licensed. So you can sell it and you can promote it. It's up to you. But however, there is commitments that are usually being required by the regulatory authority. The commitments that are mostly on safety as well as uh, effectiveness that you must be able to show that uh, you will be able to produce those vaccines, first of all, consistently, lot to lot consistently, as well as uh, effectiveness, that those vaccines will be effective at a, a real life situation. So those are the things that they will be given, will be required to monitor. And of course, the pharmacovigilance aspect will be required to monitor and report those any adverse events that will be reported to you. In the industry phase, uh, you find at the early phase, during the preclinical, they also start learning on how they can scale up this particular product that they are going. Because you, you've known that this vaccine candidate is, let's say, antigen A, and then uh, how can you produce it? You produce something little in a small fermenter, but now you have to scale from, uh, let's say, 50 liter fermenter to 100 or even 1,000 fermenter. How can you characterize that? And so those are the things that the industry, man, I mean, the operation parts, they are also learning. While the physicians and other people are doing the clinical development part, the the other part, the other side is the biotech, the uh, the manufacturing side. They are also learning and how they can scale up from a small facility to a large facility, and even how they can even be able to transfer such a technology. For example, if you have a then in America you have Pfizer, and then Pfizer would have another plant, let's say in, in Europe, let's say Germany, then. Uh, you have to know how you can transfer the same steps from America to Germany. And then there they can also be able to produce the same loads, that, I mean, somewhat equivalent to what you have produced. And the immunogenistic safety and the other characteristics of quality should remain the same. So all these are done at these, uh, these phases. And uh, in a nutshell, in the previous years, all this development could take up to an average of 10 10 to 15 years, depending on the on the vaccine that you want to produce. So this particular movement, you can see 10 to 15, you have not yet started selling it. So you're just still developing. So it's a lot of investment that you have to put in. Investment in terms of time, in terms of money, uh, human resources and so forth. So you find most of African countries could not be able to do this in the US. Of course, it's also of course political. If you could do that, you could, uh, the government could take such some of the costs, then it could be easy for them to to even uh, shorten the, the timing. So I think that is uh, has been the, the chain, the normal chain I can ex explain to you. But of course, for the COVID scenario, the chain was so short. <laughs> it was so short because most of the costs that are incurred by the company directly were incurred by the government. So there was plenty of money available 
So you can do any test that you want. You can do anything. The money is not a problem there. So you can do even all those phases at any time that you want and you can do it and it was available. So it was easy for them to shorten the time and uh, it was easy of course also to go further to produce because it was there. However, one thing to, to note is that SARS-CoV-2 was already SARS, SARS uh, as it is, you can see that it is a version of the coronavirus that has been there uh, causing pandemics in the in Asia. In 2000, in the year of 2001 or 2002, there was a pandemic in, I think, in Asia. And they, from there, they started learning on how they can produce a vaccine from there. But they stopped because the pandemic was over by then. But however, they kept that science. And that science has helped uh, the current scientists to go much further, faster. So they didn't, t- they didn't take time, much more time to explore, to learn about the disease and to learn about HIV. So it was easy for them to just go from one to two preclinical and then preclinical preclinical and then they later produced it and it was easy within a, a year a year I think it was enough for them to, to come up with conclusions so that is how I can say and how can complexities be shortened hmm. okay so what is Africa's current vaccine manufacturing capacity? Um, so what, like what phase of the chain can we be, are we a part of right now? And also what vaccines, if any, do we manufacture on that one? Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you talk about pre-qualified vaccines, these are vaccines that are pre-qualified by the WHO. Uh you only speak of uh, Senegal, the Institute Pasteur Dakar, Senegal. They are the ones that are producing yellow fever vaccine and have been doing that for so long now. And that's the only vaccine that has been pre-qualified. That is that the country can even uh, sell it outside the country and uh, sell it globally. So it's only Senegalese. The other countries like South Africa, they are doing just fill and finish of most of the vaccines that uh, they have there. So they have contracts with the other companies, but they just receive the bag and then uh, uh, produce the, I mean, not produce, but just do the filling and then the finishing. Those are uh, sending brilliant to their internal market. They don't sell it outside South Africa. So it's just there based on the uh, agreement with the, the sister company. So it's just there. And also there are countries like Egypt. They've been producing vaccines that are just for local consumptions. And so they are not uh, pre-qualified by WHO, so they cannot export in terms of that, unless uh, maybe another country takes its own uh, risk that it will just uh, take uh, buy vaccine from Egypt. Then it's up to it's up to the country itself. But however, in terms of pre-qualification, if one wants to sell it to the UNICEF procurement mechanism, then uh, it will only rely on SNIC. So with, with the the capacity for manufacturing in Africa is. It's quite very, very low. <laughs> that is how we, I can imagine. So. But however, with the COVID-19, there have been civil agreements. We can see now Johnson & Johnson, uh, they will start to produce their, <clears throat> their vaccine in, in South Africa. But however, they, 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 don't, they are not yet producing it. It's just still fill and finish. So they, they announced that they will produce there, but it's actually fill and finish. Also, um, 
the other companies they have announced like Pfizer and so forth they are going to South Africa as well and the other going to uh, Rwanda and other countries but they have not yet started the actual production it's just uh, coming up for feeling finished feeding on the the needs the current needs that we have now for the COVID vaccines but not yet we we are not yet there for the actual production aspects that is produced within the African soil so those are the things I can see so fill and finish basically is they just put the vaccine in like the vials and the um, what what comes out of that process is distributed to those in the country. That's what it is, correct? Yes, exactly. It's like you buy a hundred liter of Coca-Cola and then you come to your home or even just a one liter Coca-Cola and then you come to your home and then you distribute it into uh 20 mils small bottles and then you give it to your people within your country so it's just that you fill it and then you finish by meaning that you characterize the vials and the stoppage and you make sure that it is sterile enough that you can put in something and you can distribute it hmm. Hmm. so what would it cost to boost vaccine manufacturing like the vaccine manufacturing capacity and what does like the timeline for that look like? If today, for instance, we were to embark on that journey, how long would it take? Mm-hmm. So usually, the if you don't have any obstacles to that, then uh, you can have a, a a small. I mean, a, a smart plan which even five years is enough. So it depends on the, because nowadays technology is improved. You can even have even three years. So two to three years but uh mostly if you first you start the facility this is just in the establishing the facilities here. but the this establishment of the facility is in, in, a, in a, i've described it in a manner that you are ready to receive technical transfer from somebody else who will also come to manufacture within that particular plant within that country then that is easy you can do it in a short time but if you are to start from a scratch that it is you to do the exploratory, preclinical, and so forth. Then it may take a long time to do that, up to fifteen years. So, but if you 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 have collaborated, let's say a country collaborates with the Pfizer, and uh, the Pfizer have agreed for technical transfer, then uh, the country can start uh, the facility, and the facility can can be uh, built in a manner that it is similar to what it is there. And Pfizer premises. So even doing by doing so, you can even send your human resources uh, to be experts. You send them to Pfizer's sister company, so they stay there for those years that you are taking to build the facility. So they are learning the processes and everything from there. And once they come back, it's the same corridor that they will they will be passing within that facility, as the the corridor that is within uh, Pfizer uh, plant in in the US. So if you do that like-to-like facility, then it will be easy for uh, technical transfer and start of the production. But if you start something new, then it may be something quite new and you'll be learning that newness and then it may take some, some more longer than that. Um, I noticed that you mentioned earlier that one of the issues, one of the reasons why we're over-reliant on Western countries is the lack of regulatory authorities in the vaccine manufacturing space what has been done so far to 
to like boost the regulatory capacity um, on the continent and ensure that even when the vaccines are even in the event that you know we can manufacture va- vaccines that there's the there are the regulatory frameworks to ensure that the vaccines are safe and effective mm-hmm. so, so we currently have the uh, the African vaccine uh, regulatory uh, regulatory forum, which is called AVALE. This was established some times ago. It 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 joins all the regulatory authorities, those who are willing. Of course, it's not mandatory, so they they join together, and within AVALE, they can be able to even review uh, some dossier that have been established or either clinical development of the vaccine or even for the manufacturer and so forth because they they are working in collaboration with the WHO so together they they, they can learn and they can be able to to, to support such a vaccine initiative that you want to, to produce and actually it will be an easy job for you because once it has been reviewed by AVAREF it's easy for you to go in any country because probably that country is also a member in that AVAREF and uh, actually, currently, we have the regulatory framework called the African Medicines Agency, which is uh, an agency that will be somehow similar to the EMA or FDA, EMA for Europe, which is the regulatory, big regulatory system for the European countries, the European Union. And uh, AMA will also be the same under the African Union. So it will be something... Uh, if we, if all countries will be able to ratify that treaty, I think it will be a very good stepping stone. And actually, up to recently, there was about 15 countries that have ratified it, and probably there could be something more by now. But uh, it is seems that a very, it's a very good uh, avenue for somebody if you want to produce a vaccine then in Africa, then AMA can serve that purpose, because I'm sure with that AMA, at the end of the day, they will build these such capacities for uh, vaccine or biologicals in general that they can be able to, to regulate that and uh, however apart from these regulatory aspects uh, there are other things that one can also have to look at it is the uh, issues of technical transfer issues of market access issues of uh, uh, willingness by governments to to procure or even to support such initiatives and so forth. Those are the things that I think uh, obstacles besides to the regulatory framework itself, because the regulatory framework can be easily fixed because countries can just talk to another country and then one can do the oversight on the behalf. But if you cannot access such another country's market, then it becomes somehow difficult as well. So, uh, with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, there have been a, quite a large number of stakeholders who have come in place. And uh, thanks that uh, Africa CDC has been pioneering and uh, they have uh, established under the African Union the Partnership for, Partnership for Africa Vaccines Manufacturing. So, uh, in that particular avenue, they have a very big juncture or portfolio of vaccines that they are able to produce. I think they have mentioned like 
over 20 antigens that uh, they are earmarking to be able to produce by 2030, something like that. 2030. So, when we think so about vaccine manufacturing, um, plan and it be a who are the stakeholders? Um, what are they saying however, about all these plans will depend if, as your willingness to depends on the governments embark on this journey? And also contribution to the African Union and so forth, and other stakeholders that will come. Of course, there are other stakeholders like the African Development Bank that have uh, also promised to, uh, of course, they have committed a certain amount of money to for such endeavors, and they're working together with the Africa CDC. And I also know the CEPI, uh, they, 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 they also uh, merged, I mean, they collaborate with African CDC. I think in the end, they will be able to be to, to develop uh, vaccines for Africa. Maybe, it may be now that they are focusing on COVID vaccines, but uh, however, uh, there are things that they also have to think. Of course, they are thinking that aspect, I, I believe. It's the post-pandemic era as well, because uh, most of African countries, we they are now low middle income, low income countries, and some are middle income countries, low middle income countries, and then they have been getting getting support from Gavi, which is the Global Alliance for Vaccine. So if they 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 they, they I mean they, that that um dependence on Gavi is expired, maybe they they graduate from Gavi because Gavi has been given African countries uh, support financial support to procure vaccines, especially for those vaccines that are. Uh, we could not procure on our own because they are somehow much more expensive. So if those will get away, it means the African governments will have to procure on their own. If that phase reaches, then the African government will come back again and say, why don't we produce our own vaccines? So I think that is also another drive that will be uh, putting up pressure in the African government. However, of course, the pandemic has driven a lot of governments they announced including including your Ghanaian government they are now starting their facilities for vaccine production but what i'm not uh, sure is once you have established this tremendous number of vaccine production facilities without agreeing on market aspects uh, sustainability and maintenance and so forth those are the things that could last longer than the pandemic i think those are the things that uh, will be worrisome that these efforts will be uh, will be dead in the near future. But however, if they keep on the fire and uh, continue forward, I think it will be able to help us even prepare for the next pandemic. I think that could be a way forward. Mm. Mm. All right. So you've touched on this at different points, you know, over this interview, but just to wrap this up. So in the long and short terms, what's the way forward? Um, for African countries, in terms of, in terms of boosting manufacturing capacity, and ensuring that we aren't this over reliant on Western countries, come the next pandemic. So I think uh, if African countries would focus, because now the the plans that we have for the uh under the african cdc uh, is such a huge plan actually and it needs a very uh good coordination otherwise such big plans may end up not being implementable because they speak of a lot of money 
and uh, if you talk of a lot of money to most of African countries, they will say, ah, no, you know, we cannot do that and do that in the near future. They can start now because of the pandemic. They can say, yes, we can go. But in the future, when there is no pandemic, then they say, ah, no, we will just lie. We will buy something from India because it is cheaper. So what I think is that African countries can uh, see whether they can collaborate and starting from small facilities starting with the one antigen for example if it is the regional aspects for example the uh, east african region then a facility for east african region can start with one per antigen i mean here it is one vaccine i can say so they will start with a such a single vaccine once they are able to produce it and they've developed enough uh, experience then they can start another vaccine within that particular facility and then they can go to the third and then the fourth and then the fifth they can expand that way uh, in number and also the best way could be even starting from the clinical lots because producing a clinical lot is simple i mean it's not that simple but it is it requires less resources so it is just a small facility and then you just produce let's say even uh, uh, a thousand doses that you'll be using for clinical trials so it is easier you develop that one and then uh, you can be able to grow your regulatory authority because they will be regulating that small facility and seeing the clinical aspects because you have enrolled people and then they can see the effect uh, efficacy including that uh, accompany your clinical trial and then later during the licensure it's easy for them to, because they've known all the process and then there they have developed enough experience and hands-on for your people, including other people. And that is easy that way that they can do. And uh, I think if you learn from other countries like Brazil and Cuba, uh, these are the countries that started their own initiatives. They, it was the governments that established these. They established the manufacturing plants. For Brazil, they, they, they entered an agreement with the GSK uh, company where they started producing the first vaccines there. Initially, they used to buy from GSK, but later on, they started, they entered an argument that GSK would produce the vaccine there in the country. And so they started from uh, those phases, uh, like build and finish, and then later they developed uh, uh, capacity in terms of production. So they, they added the technical transfer aspect, and then uh, later they were able to produce their own vaccines. And now they can produce more than 20 vaccines in their facilities, which is a good uh, development. And they also can export those vaccines to other uh, regions. Within their region, the, the WHO region there is called PAO. So they can sell those vaccines to that region as well. So that is the government oriented. And uh, that also has lowered the, the cost for them to save the expanded program organization in their country because they rely within their own manufacturing facilities. Also, the other country could be Cuba. That is also an, an, a good example because they started their own despite of the embargo that they have with the U.S., but they started within. They produced these uh, small vaccines and then later they grew up into quite a number and now they can even produce monoclonal antibodies and other therapeutics from there. And they can also export those to other countries in the Americas or in outside the Americas. So it is a good thing that... Uh, African countries can learn from these uh, two countries in terms of government-oriented uh, investment. But if one wants to to do a public partnership or private uh, investment, then they can learn from India. India, the government didn't invest in production vaccines, but it was 
it assured investors that they have a big population. You see, they have one over one billion population over there. So the birth cohort is also so much higher. So selling a vaccine to Indian country is like selling to a population of, uh, let me say, 10 African countries or even 15 or even the whole African country. So it's a big market. So it invested and also it provided them with a uh, investment areas where people can go and invest there. They cut off some of the taxes and other land uh, fees and so forth. But you invest there and you'll be able to produce and you can sell from there. And now the uh, regulatory authorities also uh, fully function. So it is a, a good avenue that the African countries can learn as an African country. But if you, uh, if each individual country in Africa would tend to go on its own, it will likely fail in the future because it will be somehow uh, expensive to land such facility on its own. But unless it has a big number of people to save, mostly even uh, regionalized or even the all Africa, I think that could be a very good one. So if you divide Africa into regions, so let's say two regions can produce uh, one similar antigen because you have to be able to to have a backup. If this uh, you rely on one one facility, then uh, that facility, if it fails, then you fail the whole African country. So maybe two regions within the African blocks can produce one antigen, and then the other two regions can produce the other antigen. And then once you grow up, then you can add more and add more and add more. And then at the end of the day, African can be self-reliant. Because one who is investing in Ghana is able to sell all those vaccines to uh, the whole region of Africa. And also someone who investing in Kenya or Tanzania is able to sell that vaccine to all of Africa. That could be a very good scenario. But unless these politicians come together and agree to the common market, I hope that could be the way forward and to you know, it will it will attract more investors. And currently, actually, there's a lot of uh, middle-income people within these countries. So you find that people are looking at quality issues. So I think it will be a good avenue for investors to come and see this market. And as well as the African population is much more growing. It's growing fast. So which means the market is there even for more than a decade, more than a a millennium, I think, in COVID. So I think it's a, a good place to invest, but it's only need a market access via collaboration within these countries. So with the establishment of AMA, I think that is a good point. But that should come together with the agreement on marketing. I think that would be a, a good uh, uh, point to the All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Where the Health Are We? And it just so happens that this is also the last episode of this season. Um, working on this season has been challenging in many ways, but it has also been been fun. And it's been my pleasure to, um, to put together seven episodes. If you've listened to... If you've listened to us this far, if you listen to all seven episodes, I am grateful. Thank you very much. 
and i hope you gained something from the episodes i hope you learned a great deal if you enjoyed this episode as a matter of fact if you enjoyed the whole season there's a few ways you can help out um, you can share it with your friends and your family or on your social media platforms um, you could follow us on our social media platforms so on instagram twitter um, linkedin as well we have a linkedin account the links to those are in the bio and you could also rate this podcast on the platform that you listen on i'll get to working on the next season as soon as i can and um, i will send out a survey where you can give feedback on the season as a whole um, and give recommendations and like future seasons and also give suggestions and things you would like to learn about or things you think would be important to talk about on, on the podcast but also feel free to leave a comment on the platform that you listen on i don't know if spotify lets you leave a comment but i know apple apple podcast does so if you can leave a comment there too that would be great um, this podcast was co-produced by me chinamami hijerika and brian fleischer um, the sound for the podcast was created by Muti Ogunchino. The cover art for each episode was created by Onyo Ifedua. So again, thank you very much for, for listening, for tuning in over the past seven episodes. And I hope to be in your ears again soon. Um, bye-bye.